National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, December 6th, 2023, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together every Wednesday morning here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to explore national security challenges and opportunities. We're taking a bit of a break today from the in-depth, hard-hitting coverage of America's myriad national security challenges. However, I I think you'll still enjoy the show we have lined up for you. Today we're going to speak with three authors about their books, which I say fall into the national security thriller genre. Think Tom Clancy, but for modern challenges, or or perhaps historical national security fiction woven into the fabric of real-world crises. We're going to learn how American national security challenges from yesterday and today influence and inspire the creation of thriller novels that capture our attention, keep us riveted for hours as we plow through these stories, and hold us on the edge of our seats until the very end of the book. We have three authors with us today, all of whom write in this genre. Let me introduce you to them. Our first is John Harrigan, who goes by the nom de guerre, J.J. Harrigan. J.J. Harrigan writes historical thrillers. He acquired a taste for international intrigue from his experience as a former soldier during the Cold War, as a U.S. Foreign Service officer in Latin America, and as a professor of political science at Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Today he writes his tales of intrigue from his home on the banks of the St. Croix River in Minnesota, where he lives happily with his wife, Sandy. His latest book, Goodbye Cuba, sets you in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962, possibly the most dangerous week in the history of the world. He will also be releasing two other novels next year. Goodbye Bobby takes you back to presidential candidate Bobby Kennedy and his hopes to end the Vietnam War. And another book, Goodbye Virtue, recreates the Iranian hostage crisis of 1979 through 81 through the eyes of a hostage and his wife back home. All are published by Bronzewood Books. Our second guest is David Bruns. David Bruns earned a Bachelor of Science in Honors English from the United States Naval Academy. That's not a typo. He's probably the only English major you've ever met who took multiple semesters of calculus, physics, chemistry, electrical engineering, naval architecture, and weapon systems just so he could read some Shakespeare. He thinks it was totally worth it. For six years, David served as a U.S. Navy submarine officer where he played cat and mouse with the Russian Navy in the North Atlantic. When the Cold War ended, he was out of a job. He spent 20 years in the high-tech industry in sales, marketing, and general management. During that time, he moved seven times, including to both U.S. coasts, Singapore, and finally to Minnesota. One day, he decided to just quit his job and start writing novels. According to David, yes, it really was that sudden. Now he writes science fiction under his own name and also co-writes contemporary national security thrillers. David Bruns is a graduate of the prestigious Clarion West Writers Workshop. He is the author of over 20 novels and dozens of short stories. Finally, our third guest is David McCloskey. David McCloskey is the author of the novels Moscow X and Damascus Station. He's a former CIA intelligence analyst and former consultant at McKinsey & Company. While at the CIA, he wrote regularly for the President's Daily Brief, delivered classified testimony to congressional oversight committees, and briefed senior White House officials, ambassadors, military officials, and Arab royalty. He worked in CIA field stations across the Middle East throughout the Arab Spring and conducted a rotation in the counterterrorism center focused on the jihad in Syria and Iraq. During his time at McKinsey, David McCloskey advised national security, aerospace, and transportation clients on a range of strategic and operational issues. David was born and raised in Arden Hills here in Minnesota. He graduated from Moundsview High School before heading off to conquer the world. He holds a Master of Arts from the Johns Hopkins School for Advanced International Studies, where he specialized in energy policy and the Middle East. 
J.J. Harrigan, David McCloskey, and David Bruns. Gentlemen, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you for having us. Thanks, John. Oh, uh, David, we uh, are we good now? All right, there we go. Uh, so, gentlemen, I want to drive right in with the three of you. Uh, I want to interview all three of you today, make sure we get plenty of time with each of you. Uh, I want to learn about your methodology and your inspiration, inspiration for writing these books, but I want to start with this first question. Uh, and uh, maybe we'll start with uh, with uh, J.J., we'll start with you. Uh, why, why did each of you decide to become authors? Uh, writing a book is a pretty significant commitment of time and energy, uh, especially if you have to research the historical facts and weave them into a story, or, or research modern uh, challenges and bring the technical details to life for the reader. So, J.J., let's start with you. Why did you become an author? Well, I guess two things happened. Well, I already was an author. I had two textbooks while I was teaching at Hamlin. And, um, but, you know, I've been teaching for many years. And after a while, you get kind of a hankering to do something different. And, and two things really triggered it. One was late in the spring, I got a call from a publisher who wanted me to um, come up with new editions of both of my textbooks. Hmm. Now, normally, this would be a great news for an author, but it depressed me because I knew I was going to have to spend the next two summers in the basement of Wilson Library, <laughs> the University of Minnesota, pouring over erudite research articles after article after article, looking for those little golden nuggets of wisdom that would make my next edition sparkle over the, the previous ones. And the idea of spending my time doing that again depressed me. The second thing that happened about the same time was we had a curriculum change at Hamlin. Well, we were all push to develop an interdisciplinary course. I never understood why we did that because it seemed to me our students were bright enough that they could make the connections between what they learned in my course with what they learned in David's course uh, without us needing a special course to bring it all together. And it also seemed to be a waste of our expertise. I mean, we, we, we all had spent years developing an expertise in a subject and now we were moving on to something else. But anyway... I was a faithful family, faculty member, so I developed a course on politics and fiction. Okay. And in that course, I'll never forget, one day, I, what I had them reading, they were reading novels and looking at movies from mid-20th century on. And I'll never forget this one young woman, uh, Ms. Benson. That was her name, Benson. I remember her name. I remember clearly. She had been reading this novel, which wasn't all that great, set in 1947, but she loved it. And she said to me, she said, I wish I could have lived in those times. And that floored me because nobody had ever said to me they wished they could have lived in the times that I wrote about in my textbooks. Oh, yeah. And I realized something, that with a novel, you can touch people in a way that you can't with scholarly research. yeah. So that decided it. I decided then and there I was going to quit teaching. I was going to writ, quit researching textbooks. And I was going to spend all my time writing historical fiction where I wouldn't have to do any research. All right. Now, what <laughs> deluded me into thinking you could write historical fiction without doing any research, I don't know. But sometimes we need a few delusions to get us to take the next step in life. And 
So that's that's what got me into it, John. Okay. Uh, and David McCloskey, so you were at CIA. I think a lot of people would uh, would kill to get a job at CIA. And, and then you switched over into the into the cult, consulting world with McKinsey and Company. What what drove you to become an author? Yeah, I uh, maybe a similar answer with plenty of delusion thrown in there. I think that'll <laughs> probably be a common theme across these answers. So I uh, I had worked on Syria the entire time I was at CIA. I joined as an undergrad intern. I actually uh, took my first polygraph when I was nineteen and started when I was twenty. And so I had I had worked on Syria, lived in Syria for a while. Uh, and over the course of that time, Syria descended into a, a awful uh, civil war, which I think is almost impossible for us to imagine how much suffering there has been in that place. And when I left the CIA, I was actually fairly, um, you know, I'm emotionally racked by this, I would say. And I I'd never I had never studied writing you know i mean i'd gone through english classes in high school i don't even know if i'd taken them in college i'd never taken a creative writing course but for whatever reason i started to just write a set of reflections some were sort of fictional stories some were not about my time living in syria working on syria while i was at the cia and i wrote about a hundred thousand words of stuff which i think at the time i thought was okay but you know, upon further reflection and review, it was awful. And it was more like a set of journal entries than anything, right? There was no, turns out if you want to write a thriller or a spy novel, you know, you tend to need a plot and you need characterization. <laughs> and it had none of that. But I had so enjoyed the process of just writing it that when I had an opportunity, you know, you fast forward the clock five years, I had done a lot of time at McKinsey by then. I was fairly burned out and ready for a change. And I was able to take seven months and go back to the writing. And the the novel, the first novel really came out of that. And it was, it was the answer to the question to put a point on it is I could sit down and write and six, seven, eight hours would disappear. And you find something like that you just want to keep doing more of it, and so that's what that's what opened the door to me writing. Yeah, that that consultancy work at a place like McKinsey that that is that burns you out. I mean, it is tough tough work. So it is, yeah, ton, tons of travel, and you know, impossible to kind of have a side hustle writing when you're working seventy eighty hours a week. So I had to take I think I had to take that break yep. to really get back to the writing and discover it. And David yeah. Bruns, I know you had a very successful corporate career that you just up and, and quit one day <laughs> and decided to become an author. Yeah, so, so my writing story actually goes back. <laughs> I, I wanted to be a writer from the time I was seven years old. And I remember the first book I finished um, was called The Secret of the Old Mill, the Hardy Boys book. And I finished <laughs> that, and I said to myself, man, I want to do this for a living. <laughs> and I was seven. I didn't actually fulfill that promise until I was 47. I, uh, uh, I, I rode through high school. I was an English major at the Naval Academy, which is a bit of a rarity. Uh, went into submarines, which is even rarer because that's the most technical part of the Navy. Um, uh, but uh, as you, as is in my bio, and as you mentioned, uh, when I was 47, I just decided I'd had enough and walked away. Uh, came home and was sort of uh, at loose ends. I traveled a lot, and all of a sudden I was around the um, around the house all the time. Uh, 
And my wife says, you've got to find something to do. And uh, she says, you know what? You've always said that you're going to write a book. And I had started a couple. I had started probably half a dozen novels over the years, and then life took over. I didn't finish them. She says, you've always said you're going to write a book. Why don't you go write a book? I said, you know, I have zero excuses. That's a great idea. So I, I wrote my first book over the course of about three or four months. It was a science fiction story. It was not very good. It was a very linear story. But I finished it, and I had an incredible sense of satisfaction. And I said to my wife at that point, I said, you know what? I don't think I'm going to find another job. I think this is my new job. And she says, okay, go do it. <laughs> so I did it. All right, so two of you, uh, the Davids, both of you write modern national security thrillers. And, J.J., you write thrillers that are wrapped inside of historical events. Uh, I'm going to start with you, David McCloskey, for this question. Uh, why this genre of writing, this uh, national security thriller? Uh, what is your methodology for creating your story as well? Uh, I mean, in other words, how do you decide on the arc of your story? And how do you build out the whole plot, develop characters, that kind of thing? Can you give us some insights on your process and, and why you chose the national security thriller genre? Yeah, so the uh, the process question will be messy. That'll be like a you know a psychotic sort of uh, corkboard scene in a in a detective story where none of it makes sense to anybody but the person who's you know putting all the little strings and and cards up. Uh, we can get into that. So the the answer to why this genre, I think I have always been fascinated by what's going on in the world and had a desire since I was very young to try to understand really what's happening. And uh, that led me, I think that interest led me to major in international relations as an undergrad. It led me into the CIA. I had been an avid reader of spy fiction, international thrillers in particular, uh, as, as a kid and in high school and in college. And so I think there was sort of a natural uh, connection between, you know, my interests my work and then eventually kind of what I have decided to write about. So that's the answer to, to why I also think maybe at a somewhat deeper level, the genre does allow you to explore really the gamut of human experience and emotion uh, in really high stakes, kind of high concept situations where if you, you know, if you, if you get it right and you connect the characters directly to the stakes of the plot, it can be really quite fun because you could, you know, you have a situation where, um, you know, <laughs> the world's on the line or whatever. And, you know, the, 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 the sort of emotional spine of the novel from the character standpoint is also on the line. So I've, I always enjoy that when I, when I read in the genre. Uh, I think my process, you know, I come out of, uh, you know, CIA analytical writing, uh, McKinsey, kind of the same thing, highly analytical environments. And when I started writing, I assumed quite foolishly that I could produce a, a story, find a story, create a story um, in a similar way. And that was incredibly dumb. It has not turned out that way for me at all. Uh, and what my process, if you can call it that now, is I try to start with an image in my head of the of the climactic scene of, of the novel. And I will typically not know who the characters are at that point, maybe even where the setting is going to be, but I'll have some sense of the spark, the thing that I need to go and find by writing the book. 
And once I have that or think I have that, I'll then just start writing. Uh, I, I will do research up front if I'm not as familiar with, with the, you know, the, the, some piece of the tradecraft or the setting, you know, my, my second novel, Moscow X, like I didn't do Russia at CIA. And so I had to get smart on that pretty quickly, but I will also really try to limit a lot of the upfront research so that I can just get into the story to understand what I need to research and future passes through it. But it's a chaotic process because I'll just sit down every day I'll do this after we're done talking here. I'm going to sit down. I have no idea what I'm going to write. I don't know how the plot is going to to function. I don't know all the main characters. I'm just going to find something that I think has energy, and I'm going to try to write that. As a result, my books are somewhere between maybe 115 and 130,000 words. I typically write like four to 500,000 words over the course of the process because I just I don't know a better way than just getting into it, writing, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't meeting different characters along the way, some that have energy and some that don't, and kind of working through it that way. So it's it's very iterative, it's very inefficient, uh, it's very maddening, but you know, it's at the end of the day what seems to work for me to to find the story yep. at the end of the day. Okay. Uh JJ, what's your process? Oh, I'm sorry, I said I wasn't listening. I'll let you said David. Oh. <laughs> well, you actually had two questions, John. One was like, why, why, why the genre, genre? and yep. the other is the process. Yep. And the first question, the genre, is because I think that's what I knew best. I grew up reading adventure stories, and they had a big impact on me. I remember when I was fairly young reading a book that was extremely popular uh, called um, The... Uh, the Ugly American. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that had a mammoth impact on me. And I was young, and so I thought, wow, they need me in the Foreign <laughs> Service. And I think that's what impelled me to take the Foreign Service exam, yeah. exam eventually and join the Foreign Service. And I, I know it's arrogant to say that, but we tend to be arrogant when we're young, right? Uh, so that was what got me into uh, that particular genre. It's what I knew. It's what I liked. And if I liked it, I figured there'd be somebody else out there who liked it um the second question you had was how you build out the arc the plot and the characters and when you're writing historical fiction the arc is kind of determined by the history of the event so i could not recreate a missile crisis that was dramatically different from the one that happened and i tried very carefully to sequence events along with the crisis, yeah. but it's more than sequencing because, the, you know, it, it it starts. President Kennedy <clears throat> makes a deal with Soviet Premier Khrushchev to halt flights of the U two spy plane over Cuba, uh, uh, if Khrushchev will promise not to give any Kennedy any trouble before the midterm elections come up. Then Khrushchev blackmails him and starts sending his his nuclear missiles to uh, to Cuba. Uh, and so then they discover the missiles are there. And then more happens. And then there's danger. And then there's a potential invasion. And then there's three or four real mishaps yeah. when when war really could have started. Right. And and so the the tension just escalates naturally it really as does. you go through the arc. Yeah. But then laying on top of that arc of course is the plot of the story. And um, for my plot, 
I went back to uh, one of the things the CIA did repeatedly was try to assassinate Castro. Yeah, that's true. And so right very early when these things are happening behind the scenes that are going to lead up to the missile crisis, I got these two rogue agents in the CIA who feel that they can bolster their career if they can finally knock off Castro. So they go looking for a guy who's got several qualities that they think they could infiltrate into Cuba uh, with a rifle, and they find that guy in the in the person of Army Lieutenant Charlie Parnell. And uh, so they go to him, and of course he tells them, you're crazy, I'm not going to do anything like this. <laughs> but they got some information on him, and they got, they, they, they really got him over a barrel, and they blackmail him. And so he he goes along with it with against his better judgment, but he feels like he doesn't really have any choice. And then throughout the story, he's constantly trying to figure out a way that he can get out of actually doing this. And so that escalates as well. And as the reader, you don't know until that moment, very late in the novel, when he's finally got cross got Castro in his crosshairs, whether or not he's really going to pull the trigger. Right. And so, I'm, and there's two things I'm trying to accomplish with this. Is one is you're trying to build up the tension mm-hmm. as you go along. So it's just not a sequence of events. Charlie did this. Charlie did that. But each event makes it a little bit more dangerous and a little more builds up a little more more tension. The other thing is, uh, it's critical that that the reader care about this character. Right. Because if they don't care about the protagonist, they're not going to read very many pages in your book. But it's hard to get somebody to care about somebody who's agreed to become an assassin. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I had to build into it all to all of Charlie's ambivalences. So anyway, he he... He he agrees to take the job, and then the plot builds after that. And then uh, their idea is they're going to infiltrate him into Cuba under the cover of being a reporter for a European newspaper, the Irish Times. Yeah. Uh, when the Cubans get the visa request from the Irish Times, all of a sudden they get suspicious because they've heard rumors that the CIA has another assassin they're going to send into Havana. And... Uh, so the plot just sort of develops naturally yeah. from the arc. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and David Bruns, <coughs> why this genre? Uh, you started off in science fiction, and then what's the methodology? Yeah, so speaking of formative novels, uh, a formative novel for me was A Hunt for Red October by uh, Tom Clancy. It came out when I was a, uh, a freshman, a, a plebe at the U.S. Naval Academy, and it's not too much of a stretch to say that one of the reasons why I went into submarines was because I had read that book. <laughs> at a pivotal time in my life. So when I was uh, had left my job and I was writing science fiction, you and I met, um, and I, I, had the, I, I had a secret desire to write a military thriller-type book. Uh, but I got out of the Navy in the uh, mid-'90s, and now it's uh, 2013, 2014. And I realized that I didn't have the current knowledge to really pull that off. But you had recently retired, and I'm like, well, this guy's probably got the juice to uh, let me pull this thing off. So... Uh, we started working together. Uh, co-writing a book is very different than writing a book independently, and we're working on our 10th novel now, so the process has gotten extremely well. I mean, it was very similar to what uh, uh, to what your other guest uh, described as sort of chaos at the beginning, but after a 10th novel, we sort of have it down to a well-oiled machine. We look at a story arc. We already have a set of characters. We look at a story arc. We try to put the pivotal tentpole moments into that. 
Uh, we go and build a chapter-by-chapter chapter outline. You go off and do the research. Once the research is done, I go off and do a first draft, and then we edit and package it from there. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are J.J. Harrigan, David McCloskey, and David Brunt, all of whom are noted authors of national security thrillers. Uh, so, David Bruns, you also write science fiction. Uh, where did you get your inspiration for writing in that genre? Do, do you take science fiction we understand today and then project out decades, or do you create things? Uh, how different is your science fiction writing from the national security thriller writing? So in terms of story, I don't think it's that different. In terms of uh, what science fiction means to me, the other formative novel in in my history is uh, Dune by uh, mm-hmm. Frank Herbert. It came out in 1965. We're almost 60 years later, and it's still, I think, pretty relevant. So the beauty of science fiction to me, and I was a Star Trek guy and all that, uh, the beauty of science fiction to me is that you can build a secondary world and you can talk about things and you can have story elements where you can set, the, you can set your own rules. I think the rules of story and the rules of, na- the rules of narrative still apply, but you're putting it into a different setting and making that setting an integral part of the story. For me, that, that was a natural place to start, and then I uh, – and then I wanted to branch out into uh, national security thrillers from, from there. All right. And and are you actually going to go into the uh, the crime uh, novel area in the next year? Um, it is possible the next year we'll see another change of genre yet. <laughs> I uh, When I grow up, I will settle on one genre, but that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> okay. And J.J. Harrigan, your process for selecting an historical event, what is it about history that compels you to create a fictional story inside a particular crisis. You chose the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, Robert Kennedy's run for president, and the, and the Iranian hostage crisis for your, your three current books. Those are pretty heavy topics. Uh, having read Goodbye Cuba, I was deeply impressed, uh, frankly, with the elements of your storytelling. So how do you choose uh, an historical crisis? Well, very early in the game, I knew that I wanted to write an adventure story, a thriller-type story. And I knew I wanted to set it somewhere in the period from World War II toward the end of the century. And so I remember I remember sitting down with a yellow pad, listing all the crises <laughs> that I could think of. But I also wanted this I also wanted this story to be one that had an upbeat ending. Because uh, so much of our literature today is so dystopic that it's depressing. And um so you say, well, what could be upbeat about the threat of nuclear war? <laughs> and what's upbeat is that it does not happen. Yeah. And this, in my mind, was from the Berlin airlift in 1949 to the fall of the Soviet Union. This incident was the single most successful American adventure uh, during that entire period um, because it didn't lead to a war. It stopped a war, and um, things, a lot of things changed as a consequence of that. So I'm sitting there with my legal pad, and so Cuba just jumps out immediately, and that's why I go into that one. And then I'm, I'm not sure exactly why I picked um, Bobby Kennedy for the next one, except that I had to do something on the Vietnam War, because that clearly, I mean, that's the major disaster of our lifetimes. And um, and I set it around the th- last three months of the spring of 1968, which mm. was a very tumultuous time around the world. Yes. And 
so allowed me to bring a lot of that stuff in as well. And I had a character that I, because my character in, in uh, Goodbye Cuba was in his early 20s. All I had to do since from 60 to 68 was age him by six more years. <laughs> right. And uh, boom, I could plug him into to the next story. Yep. The, then the third one I picked, I'm not sure exactly why I picked the Iranian hostage crisis, except that it, watching it had such a powerful impact. Having served in an American embassy overseas, having served in an American embassy overseas, uh, it was almost like a personal affront that these people would invade the American embassy right. and hold these diplomats hostage. And so I empathized with those guys all the way through and um, finally ended up constructing this story built around the guy who gets taken hostage and his wife back in America who has to deal with it. They both have to deal with it yeah. in different ways. So that was why I picked those. Okay. Uh, so, David McCloskey, uh, you spent a, a good number of years as an analyst at CIA. Uh, did, uh, did that influence your, your plot development and help you create characters? If you want to differentiate, frankly, uh, for your between uh, Damascus Station, your first novel, and Moscow X, your second novel, uh, that would also that'd be very interesting for us. Yeah, I think that there were distinctions between the two uh, from a process standpoint, for sure. You know, the the CIA experience, and in, I'll start with Damascus Station, which was my first novel. And while none of it is autobiographical, it drew a lot on different experiences that, uh, and really a lot of different events that had happened in Syria over the course of my time uh, working on working on the country. And so I had, I think, mental images of both CIA officers, uh, you know, who had worked with me, lived in Damascus with me, uh, and Syrian intelligence officers, Syrian palace officials who I had studied very closely. And so I had these little nuggets of reality that, you know, I think it's probably fair to say in many cases the the truth really is more strange than any kind of fiction you can put together. And so I started with that as the tapestry, I think, for both what happens in Damascus in the novel, but then also the, the, the people that inhabit the novel. And over the course of the process of writing it, I became more and more convinced that one of the things I wanted to do with the book, or frankly, one of the things that was happening with the book as I wrote it, was how do I punch holes or windows, rather, into every side of this conflict? Because I think we have a perspective here that, Either Syria is so messed up and complicated and distant that it's not worth understanding, or in some circles you can have kind of a cartoonish, there's good guys and bad guys view of that war. And to me, both of those things, they just sort of didn't ring true with my experience. So the characters of the novel, both CIA and Syrian and otherwise, really kind of came out of that desire to show all sides. Um, Not to draw moral equivalency in some respects, because there are some pretty dastardly characters in the novel, but um, to, you know, I think add some real human complexity to it. In Moscow X, the process was somewhat similar, particularly from the CIA side. So I, when I start tinkering around with or, or meeting a character, I find it is helpful to have an image of somebody who might be real to kind of start that process to pick a different case officer that I knew and say, okay, I'll use this, some of the features of this person as kind of a template to get going. Ideally, over the course of writing, 
the character becomes dis- very distinct and their own person. And then, you know, you, you sort of are discovering them as you go. But to start with a few traits, whether it could be, you know, physical description, ticks, the way they speak, uh, that's very helpful to me in drawing on that CIA experience. I'll also say because, you know, my characters in the novel are, you know, CIA officers or Russian intelligence officers or Syrian intelligence officers spending a lot of time with formers from the CIA in particular, but I had a, a, a defector from the Russian FSB who helped me on Moscow X, you know, um, having conversations with those folks, sometimes in a very unstructured way, just kind of talking about something, you start to get great material for that story or future stories just from hearing them speak. Um, so that's kind of been, been the process. I think the CIA experience was so helpful because my characters work for the CIA. So I can just, I can speak to people who are there, have worked there. And through that, you know, hopefully build kind of a a rich view of what, what that role really looks like and what those people are really like, which I can then infuse in the novel. Okay. Uh, So for audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are J.J. Harrigan, David McCloskey, and David Bruins, all of whom are noted authors of national security thrillers. Uh, So let's take a a deeper dive into into your respective books, and I'll start with you, David McCloskey. Uh, Your current novel, Moscow X, when did that launch, by the way? Uh, October, so it's just been out for a couple months. Okay. And and uh, can you give any sort of insight as to why that specific story? What was the inspiration for the plot of that specific story? And maybe tell us a little bit about your favorite character that you write about in that story. You've a lo- you've got lots of really great, very colorful characters in there. But is there one character that you write about that you really personally connect with and you thoroughly enjoy writing about that character? Yeah. So from and I think the the plot kind of. Um, you know, the question that guides the plot and the character are going to be intimately linked here. So this is, this is perfect. So the, once I found the story and there were a whole bunch of stops and starts and, you know, horrible inefficiencies here, but once I got there, the question guiding the story really became what might it look like if the CIA got very serious about sticking it to Vladimir Putin and the Russians. And I have a character from so there's there's a whole sort of cat and mouse game between the CIA and between the Russian uh you know uh intelligence service the SVR their foreign intelligence service there's sort of a a dance between the two that that guides much of the novel the CIA officer that is running the component called Moscow X which is a fictional component of the CIA's Russia house um her name is Artemis Aphrodite Proctor, and she is the chief of station in Damascus, in Damascus Station, sort of a somewhat minor character. But as I've written her, I think she, more than any other character I've met, has the most energy. And in any scene I write with her, the greatest possibility that I'll start thinking the scene will be one way and then she will move it another way. Um, And she is a very deranged CIA case officer, a very competent CIA case officer at the same time. She speaks her mind. Um, She has a bit of a potty mouth. And she is, you know, not averse to breaking the rules on occasion to get what she wants or to 
help people around her. She's also very loyal. So for me, she's the most interesting character in the novel. Um, certainly the most colorful. And she's the one I have the most fun writing. And she's actually the the star, more or less, of my third book, which will be out next year. I just kind of, she's grown in uh, in importance as as my writing has has continued because I just have so much fun with her. That, that that's great. She she is a a very colorful character. I have to admit. <laughs> uh, so David Brun, same for you. Uh, you recently released Threat Axis, uh, and your next book, Covert Action, will come out in March of twenty twenty four. I know Threat Axis is part of a series of books. Could you give us kind of a thumbnail sketch of the series? Sure. So actually, going back to our process question before, uh, for our first four books, uh, we sort of started from a set of characters, and each book we said, okay, this book is going to be about cyber warfare. This book is going to be about uh, bioweapons. When we got a contract for six books with Severn River Publishing, um, we decided we were going to do an arc plot across the series. So we knew what the story was, the basic story was at least, for the first four books before we ever put down word one. Um, And so they're linked stories, and basically it's a great powers conflict looking at uh, Russia, China, United States, and NATO allies, and sort of in the muddy middle you've got the global south and you've got the Middle East. Um, So we wanted to look at, at a... At a granular level, we wanted to look at the things which would characterize a great powers conflict, use of technology, use of AI, the international relations component, the economic component, because all of the, all of the uh, um, uh, economies of China, Russia, U.S. are so interlinked. Uh, so we, ha- we write in multiple points of view. So we write in points of view that has someone inside of Russia, has someone inside of China, has someone inside of the CIA. Um, and we try to bring this whole thing together. So the f- and and we stage sort of the series along the first four books, looking at uh, an invasion of Taiwan, looking at a war in Ukraine, looking at uh, the rise of a private military contractor army, and then for books five and six, which uh, we turned in book five and we're working on book six now, we actually shift the focus to Central Asia, to Turkmenistan, um, uh, pl- places like that. Uh, so so uh, we took a much more structured approach, and we took sort of an over overarching story approach to that to that uh, series of books. So command and control is the first one. You should really start there. Yeah, of, of the current series of books. Yes. So, what's your favorite character uh, to write about, and why? Wow, uh, my favorite character to write about is probably going to be uh, Harrison Cole. So Harrison Cole is a minor character in the first few books and then comes up through through the ranks to the point where by the time we get to book five, the book is really Harrison's book. He's he's the main character in uh, Central Asia. He's a, uh, a guy who's come up through the ranks. He likes field jobs. He doesn't like desk jobs, but he made a mistake in his past, and he's been relegated to desk jobs mostly, and he gets that cherished field assignment through a series of unfortunate events that turns out to be more than he bargained for. Fair enough. Uh, J.J. Harrigan, uh, we, we know pretty much about uh, Goodbye Cuba and the, and the plot uh, structure there and how you were inspired to, to lay your story in over that real-world historical event. Who, who's your favorite character to write about in that story? And you, you, you continue on at least with one character in your next stories. Well, before you pin me down to the favorite character, okay. <laughs> <laughs> let me mention that the reader gets to see a lot of characters yeah. in, in this story and keeping track of them. Was a, was a major task, uh, but you get to they, you get to meet U two pilots, you get to meet a uh, second in command on the Soviet submarine, 
that's carrying a nuclear, uh, that's carrying a missile, a torpedo, that's got a uh, nuclear missile, not a, a nuclear warhead on the end of it. And uh, this becomes really important as the story goes along. You, uh, you get to meet the decision makers in the cabinet room in the White House. Kennedy puts together, President Kennedy puts together this committee that they called XCOM. And so, and one of the beautiful things about this was, I, I never knew this before, but he taped the meetings. Mm. And so you, you can get access to these tapes and you can hear these guys talking back and forth and you can follow them on the transcript because you can't hear them very well because the quality isn't very good. And you can feel the tension uh, in, in that room as they're wrestling with these issues. And as the further along they go in the crisis, the more depressed they, they get because they really think they're going to fail and that, that war is going to break out. So you got those characters. And then also in the White House, Charlie, the, the, the protagonist, Charlie, has an old girlfriend who's got a job as a typist in the White House, which brings her to the eye of the president. And um, But being in the White House, if nuclear war does break out, his old girlfriend is at ground zero. So there's a lot of characters in it that I really think are interesting. But the most interesting one is two. One is Isabel, mm. Isabel Fernandez. She is the one that Castro Security Chief taps to be a spy, to watch this guy who's coming in from Ireland, to find out if he really is a reporter or if he's an assassin. She, of course, wants nothing to do with assassins. <laughs> you know, Who would want to follow an assassin around? But she's got a four-year-old daughter, and she's afraid that if she doesn't go along with this, somehow or another... The uh, the major is going to take it out on her daughter, and her daughter daughter's going to suffer from this. And I really like her because of this conflict that she's in. And then to make matters worse, she falls in love with Charlie. And then the two of them get in trouble with with the with the major, and uh, they're running for their lives. And somehow or another, they got to get out of Cuba uh, because the CIA's exfiltration plans fail once the missile crisis starts. And he can't get out of Cuba without her help. And so she's a she's a great character in my yeah, mind. Yeah. And she, her daughter is a great character. But I can't say much about her in that novel because uh, she's only four years old. <laughs> but she ends up playing a big role in the next two novels okay. because <clears throat> she's nine by the time of the uh, of the uh, the Bobby Kennedy book, and uh, and her stepdad now Charlie is going off on missions for Bobby Kennedy dealing with the Vietnam War and she's somewhat put at risk by this and then in the third book she becomes the star of the third book Okay, she becomes she's 19 years old she joins the Peace Corps she meets an American diplomat marries him and then right after their marriage he's taken captive in Iran and held hostage while she's at home wondering what to do about it and what she does about it is so spectacular you're going to love it. All right. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are J.J. Harrigan, David McCloskey, and David Bruns, all of whom are noted authors of national security thrillers. So this next question is going to be for both of our Davids on the show. Uh, how much do you look at events that are transpiring around the world today to seek inspiration for your stories? What, what kind of research do you do 
to weave the most current technical capabilities for intelligence or, or other national security aspects into your stories? And do current crises or events or even long-term national security challenges give you ideas you then build into your stories? Wh- whoever wants to go first between the two of you, go ahead. Go ahead, Dave. David McCloskey, apparently. <laughs> I'll go. I've been nominated. There you go. Um, so I, I, I think in both books and then in, in the upcoming one, is unpublished third one as well, I have drawn a tremendous amount of inspiration from what's going on in the world today or, frankly, from historical events that I feel like I can kind of twist and play with to work on, work on a plot. I, uh, there's a great quote from a former colleague of mine named Jason Matthews who wrote the Red Sparrow trilogy, which are wonderful spy novels, and he's unfortunately since passed, but he had a line he was asked once about... Um, uh, you know, his novels focus on Russia. He was asked about Vladimir Putin. And he said he wakes up every morning thankful for Vladimir Putin, which I don't <laughs> think many people can say, because he is a source of inspiration for a tremendous amount of spy novel plots. He'll just generate the content for you. You know, you don't even really have to think about it. And I do think there's some truth to that in that if you look at crazy stuff going on around the world, be it with North Korea, be it with Putin, Assad in Syria, uh, you know, the regime in Tehran, like you don't have to go far or read that deeply to get interesting ideas that could be the springboard for a great, a great novel. And I really do. It, it is cliched, but I think it is true that it the on like the covert sort of war intelligence war between us and the Russians or between Mossad and Tehran, you know, like there are things, events that have happened in those, you know, arcs of those stories. There are personalities that are truly more interesting and intriguing and strange than anything you could just come up with sitting behind your computer or typewriter. So I always start there and really try to ground the plot as much as possible and in something that's real you know um that's important to me and and i think there's a lot of great material out there and then you know in terms of of research i will generally my my books i try to deal realistically with the setting as much as i can and to deal realistically with the cia so i try to make sure that i am being as tight as i can on the tradecraft and also, frankly, on sort of the culture and the ethos of the place, which I think is misrepresented in a tremendous amount of spy fiction, a tremendous amount of really fun spy fiction. But, you know, it, it's not you, you read a lot of this stuff and it's not doesn't really bear any resemblance to the actual CIA or the actual job of a CIA case officer or, or much less an analyst. So I try to make that as realistic as possible. I've spent a lot of time talking with with former CIA officers once I've worked out kind of a story and plot of getting the tradecraft as dialed in as I can. And then I do a tremendous amount of research over the course of, you know, the, the arc of drafting the book uh, about, about the setting. So, you know, I had dozens of conversations with, with Russians about St. Petersburg, about Moscow. Uh, I did a tremendous amount of research on everything from, you know, the Russian security services all the way down to weather in St. Petersburg and what do people wear and what are the desirable apartments and, you know, food. I mean, it's, I feel like, um, I enjoy that. 
process. And so uh, I try to really imbue the novels with as much rich detail as I can. Okay. And David Bruns. Yeah, so um, I, I would say sort of springing from uh, current events is where is the basis for the command and, and control series. We, we really wanted to say, okay, this is where the world is right now. What could it, would it look like in five or ten years from now? So for you take things like the economic linkages between the U.S. and, and, and China. If the balloon went up over Taiwan, mm-hmm. what would – what would the U.S. do? What are the options? What are the potential things which could happen? And when you start to brainstorm on those things, uh, you come up with some pretty interesting ideas. Um, the same thing goes with uh, weaponry. So what, what would uh, unmanned uh, technology look like in five years or ten years? We're actually getting a glimpse of it now. It's been accelerated greatly by, by the war in uh, Ukraine. When we uh, worked on a second book in the series, uh, which is about the battle for 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 Taiwan, the starting point, and you did most of the research on that. The starting point for that was this is what this is probably how the Chinese would invade Taiwan. This is the time span. The book takes place over ten days, um, and it's a ten day plan. And the reason why they do that is so they can get ahead of public opinion. They can get ahead of the UN. They can get ahead of the U.S. response. So we ground everything in current events, and we project from there. That's that that that's really the basis for the entire series for, for us. Uh, and, and J.J. Harrigan, now you write in the historical thriller genre, but I have to think as a former soldier, or a, for, a, a former foreign service officer, someone who's taught political science uh, at Hamlin, that you must see events around the world and think, hey, I, I think, I, I know how we got to this moment. Let me go back and tell a story about the event that started us down the path. And before we even got on the air, uh, I commented to you that, you know, one of your third novel is going to be about the Iranian hostage crisis. Well, if we go back to the CIA-supported coup d'etat that knocked off uh, Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran, uh, all of U.S. relations with Iran today were impacted by that event from the 50s. So can you talk a little bit about how you, how you do this process? How, do you, the, um, how does it inform your thinking about writing? The history. I've always thought it would be a fascinating course in history if you did what you just did and it went backwards. We couldn't have this today if that happened. We couldn't have computer chips if we didn't have the radio. We couldn't have the radio if we didn't have the And if you just took that political history and went backwards, it would be a fascinating way to teach history. I've never tried it, though. <laughs> but the one, the one thing today that jumps out of my mind, if, if I'm going to try to do a novel on today's issues, it would be Ukraine. Yeah, Ukraine, for one thing, I think what happens there is unbelievably important. If it comes, if Ukraine, well, it's already bad. But if it really turns out bad, America loses enormous influence. Western Europe loses enormous influence, and Putin's role is even more solidified yeah. than it ever was before. So I, I think Ukraine is unbelievably important, and I think there's some. You're not going to believe it, but there are some similarities to the Cuban Missile Crisis. You're not going to believe it because this is a long war in Ukraine, and the Missile Crisis was over in two weeks. But um, look at the resolution of the Missile Crisis. It couldn't have been resolved except that the two principals, Nikita Khrushchev in Russia and JFK in the White House, hadn't been smart enough to let the other guy save a little face. Yeah. 
And um, for Khrushchev, this was really critical because it was a stunning defeat for him. But he could save face if he could get the Americans to get their missiles out of Turkey sure. and pledge not to invade Cuba. So Kennedy pledges not to invade Cuba, and he agrees to withdraw the missiles from Turkey, or nuclear missiles from Turkey. And that eases things a little bit for Khrushchev and makes it easier for him to take his missiles out of Cuba. Uh, but on the other hand, there's some costs for Kennedy, <clears throat> because if he takes the missiles out of Turkey, the Turks are going to complain. <laughs> the Europeans are going to wonder if we're really serious about defending Europe. And even more importantly, he's going to face enormous lack at all. That'll be so bad that it would probably just cripple his presidency for the, for the rest of his presidency. So Kennedy exacts a concession from uh, Khrushchev. Yeah, I'll take the missiles out of Turkey, but you cannot announce this public for, for several months. I forget what the time frame was. By that time, people will be will be so enjoying the success that we had, and our status will be so good that nobody's going to care that we took these outmoded miss, missiles out of Turkey. So that, that that's a that's a great story there. But as I look at Ukraine, I don't see anybody doing anything to let the other guys save face. I, in fact, it's so bad I don't know how. Right. You could let anybody else save face. But I think without that, Cuba couldn't have been resolved. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, have I got another minute? Uh, yeah, I can give you 30 seconds. I guess, the, <laughs> I guess the truth of the matter is everything that I've done for the last four years has really been editing and revising and stuff that I've done. Because creatively I've, I've come to a dead end that, that really stems from the, the murder of my, one of my son, my youngest son, four years ago, and, and it just stops your creative juices. Yeah, He was a uh, sergeant, of, sergeant first class of the National Guard. He earned a Bronze Star in Afghanistan, and he'd been working as a firefighter paramedic for the city of St. Paul. And then he just got caught up in this wave of senseless violence that's been sweeping the Twin Cities and much of the rest of the country for the last several years. And it just kind of brought me to a and I'm just starting to recover from it now. So, so I'm not likely to start any new novels on Ukraine or, or anything else for the, for the time being. I did not know that about your son. I'm, I'm very sorry to hear about that. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so as our listeners know, I always try to reserve a little bit of time at the, at the end of the show uh, for my guests to kind of give us the last word. And, and what final thoughts would each of you like to, to leave with our listeners today? Uh, I'll start with you, J.J., and then we'll move to you, David McCloskey. And then finish up with uh, David Bruns, uh, maybe a couple of minutes. Uh, JJ, the floor is yours. Well, my final thought is read my book. Okay, <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> I think you're gonna like the story. The he, uh, the the people in my critique groups and my beta readers and my arc readers they tended to like the story. So I hope everybody else likes it as well. Yeah, it's a good story. I, I can I can attest to that. Da- uh, David McCloskey. Well. JJ stole my my answer. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, go read my go read my books. Uh, I, I would say on a more uh, more serious note, you know, I think I think the genre that we're talking about here, you know, national security thrillers, whatever whatever you want to call it, I think uh, they are a great. I think it's an important genre. You know, it, we're writing fiction. Um, 
it's it's about entertainment to some degree. The story doesn't work if it's not consumed and you want someone to go through the pages and for it to be propulsive from a plot or character standpoint and all of that. But I do think that the blending of real world stuff, be it what's going on in Russia or the possibilities of, you know, uh, a war with China and what that might look like or the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, the blending of that with the very human emotion and experience of the characters, I think is a powerful way to, you know, or frankly, a powerful compliment to reading the newspapers and following in what's going on in the world. Because so often the conversation about Syria, let's say, is highly political, devoid of any focus on humanity and the individual experiences of people who suffered and died and lived and triumphed through the war. Um, and you could add any, you could, this could be Ukraine, this could be anywhere. Um, you know, the, these kind of books sort of force us to focus on the humanity at the root of you know, good and bad, the, the humanity at the root of these crises and these situations. And I think that's a very important, very human and humane thing. Um, and so I, I think there's, there's real, you know, when these books are well done, there's, there's real depth that is possible there and, and can give us different perspective on the world and on other people, which I think is hugely important. Uh, good words. Uh, David Bruns. Yeah, uh, that's a great answer. And I would certainly echo that. I mean, I think the power of story, story is how we learn. And, and the power of story certainly is something that, uh, draws people in and gets them thinking about a topic. Uh, one of the things we do is uh, we write a weekly column on Substack called the Two Navy Guys Debrief. And basically what we do is we take a, uh, we take a, a, a news article and we, and we relate it to how that appeared in our books. It might be technology. It might be drone technology. Uh, last week was about the, the uh, we hear in the news $40 billion in aid for uh, Ukraine. Well, what does that actually look like? And how does, it, how does actually that translate into real stuff that shows up on the front lines? The answer is it goes through Poland. Yeah. And when you put all that stuff on the ground or you're putting tanks on a train, well, guess what? There's going to be uh, covert operations around trying to disrupt that. So uh, there's, there, there's a whole other level that you can go into there. Um, and lastly, I'd say um, certainly re- read our books. We write them for you. That's right. Uh, J.J. Harrigan, where, where can people find your historical fiction thrillers? Do you have a, a website? I do have a website. Very simple. Harriganbooks.com. Harriganbooks.com. My publisher has a website, bronzewoodbooks.com. And, of course, you can find them all on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. There's print editions, Kindle editions, and audio versions. Okay. Whatever way you'd like to read it or hear it, we got it for you. All right. And David McCloskey, where can people find uh, more about your work? Yeah, uh, I have a website, davidmccloskeybooks.com. Pretty straightforward. Uh, you can find me. I'm at McCloskey Books across social platforms. Uh, so at your Twitter, Instagram, and uh, God help me, TikTok. <laughs> and uh, you can also you can find the books pretty much wherever you get your books. Amazon, uh, IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, wherever. There's, you know print and uh, and audio so pick your poison and david bruns where can people find not only your national security thrillers but also your science fiction work sure so the website is davidbruns.com uh very simple um you can you can find us on Substack at two navy guys debrief uh all the books are available in uh print audio ebook uh and um 
Hope you check them out. Okay. David McCloskey, J.J. Harrigan, and David Bruns, thanks so much for joining us today. I have one last uh, question for each of you. David McCloskey, we'll start with you. Who's your favorite author? Oh, you said the hardest question for last. Um, John Le Carre. John Le Carre. All right. That, uh, that fits. Uh, it's, uh, you're right in that genre. David Bruns, how, how about you? What's your, who's your favorite author? Don Winslow. Don Winslow. All right. And J.J. Harrigan. Len Dayton. Len Dayton. Okay. Hmm. So a reminder to our listeners uh, that one of the reasons why we're doing this show is that the holiday gift-giving season is coming soon, and national security thriller novels, both historical and current, make great gifts. You may have heard something you found really interesting from these three authors today, and I would encourage you to explore their work and perhaps gift their work to your loved ones who are fans of this genre. And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you so much for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finished week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.